Pray with me. Come, Holy Spirit. We thank you for this day where we are have the opportunity to just not work, delight in who you are. And we can sit at your feet and take in your word and know you, the God who delights in who we are, just as we are, and call us to follow you. And I pray that as we look at these passages to this day, that you would do an amazing work in each and every one of our lives and truly be transformed because of the good work you're doing through Luke's story in our lives. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know how many of you have Netflix uh, confession, we do. Uh, George has been uh, auditioning for Netflix series, and we're all going, go George, go George. Because uh, there's some really good stuff, there's some really bad stuff, yes, I know. Um, so be careful in your discernment, but Netflix blockbuster Stranger Things is fun if you like sci-fi. All right? It really is. The story is set in the early 80s with an awesome soundtrack, by the way, of a bunch of middle schoolers in Hawkins, Indiana, who stumble upon a government laboratory that has discovered an alternative dimension that the world is unaware of. And it's called the Upside Down. It's this world upside down, filled with monsters who want to destroy you and destroy Earth. Um, so these, this group of kind of geeky guys play Dungeons and Dragons, so they give these monsters Dungeons and Dragons names. You have Demogorgons, Demodogs, and the Shadow Monster, otherwise known as the Mind Flayer. It's really cool. It's awesome. Um, but what happens in this text that Jesus just told in this parable, the rich man Lazarus, is a different story of the upside down. And you want to find yourself on the upside, not the downside. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, beginning with verse 19. We've been in Luke since last December, for the most part, and we have really learned all about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And if I asked you or somebody asked you, what is the kingdom of God? Could you define it for me? Could you? All right? Let's go over some of our definitions again, just to refresh your memory, right? Because this is what Jesus is doing right here with these Pharisees. The kingdom of God is God's kingdom reign within his kingdom people. Okay? Dallas Willard said, a kingdom is the range of your effective will. So that, that sounds like something a, a USC philosopher would say, isn't it? Um, so this particular parable answers that question for us. What does it mean for us to be placed within the range of God's effective will? That's his kingdom, Okay. And what this parable tells us is at least four things about living in the kingdom of God. Number one, when you live in the kingdom of God, you get a true identity. Two, you get an identity that lasts. 
three, your life is marked with generous, graceful generosity. And four, Jesus tells us how we can get it. All right? So, let's look at those. First, in God's kingdom, you get a true identity. Uh, we, we have two contrasting characters in this parable, don't we? We've got one who is rich, one who is poor. One is clothed in fine linen, purple. The other one is clothed in utter poverty, nothing. He's covered with sores, if anything. Uh, and one is literally feasting sumptuously every day. And the other one is starving on the outside, longing for crumbs and literally getting none. All right. And the rich man dies and has a funeral and was buried. And nothing is said about the other guy. He probably died and uh, it's him. Just threw him out of town just to rot. But there's a contrast that's even more striking than all those points. One has a name and the other doesn't. Have you noticed through all the parables that we've had throughout Luke and throughout the other Gospels, whether it's the Good Samaritan, the Good Shepherd, the um, parable of the lost coin, parable of the lost sheep, parable of the prodigal son, no one is personally named. But here, Jesus names the character, and the name is significant. The name Lazarus means God is my help. So what are we being taught here? Well, if you look at verse 25, Abraham says to this guy in verse 25, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. Philosophers for centuries debate what is the good? What's the ultimate good? Um, what is the thing we all should be living for? Well, the rich man, at this stage of the parable, he's made up his mind. He's made, up his, he's made his choices. He's had his good things, unlike Lazarus, whose God is my help, God is my good, God is my ultimate hope. This guy's good things are now gone. His riches, his wealth, his status. He's built his life completely on those things of this earth. And what we learn is the reason the rich man doesn't have a name is that's all that that man is or he's nothing is his riches. He's built his life on his wealth and when the wealth is gone, there's no one there. An identity is to know you're a distinct individual, to know that you're valuable, to know where you're going. And if you built your life on God, like Lazarus, if God is your identity, no matter what happens to you, and God is the source of your life, when you lose things, or even when you gain things, your core sustained stealth, there's a you there. There's a self no matter what the circumstances are. And they ultimately don't affect you. 
you're valuable because God is your help. Unlike the rich man, he doesn't have a name because if you build your identity on anything but God, if your identity is on your career, your children, your love relationships, your talent, other people's approval of you, material possessions, if you build your anything, your life and your identity on anything but Jesus Christ, when it disappears, and it will, there's nothing there. You won't feel valuable. You don't know what you're living for. And you have an identity meltdown. But if you build your life on God and Jesus Christ, then you have you. And God delights in you. And that's the authentic you that he wants you to have. Found in him and him alone. And when you walked in here, you probably didn't see that coming, did you? Are we, are we willing to go here? Are we willing to go as deep as this passage wants us to go to answer that question, which is, who are you really? You might say to yourself, well, I'm, I'm the husband of so-and-so. I'm the wife of so-and-so. I'm the father of so-and-so. I'm the mother of so-and-so. I, I, I'm a successful business person. What's wrong with being a successful business person? Nothing. Nothing's wrong. But if that's the main identifying thing in your life, you're missing the point. Jesus is saying, come get a true identity in me. Secondly, and that true identity in Jesus Christ also lasts because it's a lasting identity. Look at it. Verse 23 And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. In other words, in hell, (laughs) in torment, there it is. I said it, okay? Hell. And I know when I say these things, because I hang out at Jake's, I know what the world thinks. There's two typical reactions, and I want to make sure we have the proper understanding of hell and heaven the doctrine of heaven the doctrine of hell because right away when we talk about this there's a couple of reactions and most of them are wrong the first one is people hear the word hell and they say i don't believe that and that's the reason why gene i don't i don't buy your kind of christianity um the whole idea of hell and punishment i don't like it i don't believe it Then there are some who say, well, no, I I believe in hell. I believe there is a hell, and I was taught about that. My my challenge to you who do believe in it, does it match up with how Jesus describes it here? Because if you look carefully, you will see some very surprising things going on here. First, yes, it's a place of agony. It's a place of torment. But look what this man does. He says to him, Please, send, called out, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. 
what kind of person brings you water at your bequest? A servant. This is authentic denial here, okay, that's going on here, all right? He is in hell, and he asks Abraham, hey, I see Lazarus. Tell that guy to bring me water here in my torment. He's bossing Lazarus around, and he's in hell. This is an incredible amount of denial going on in this passage. It's astonishing, quite frankly. And he's in torment. It's an awful place, but he still thinks he's in charge of Lazarus, that he can boss him around. And he's still holding on to his identity that he had on earth, his status, his position. Secondly, and here's another surprising thing, he implies in verse 27 and verse 28, I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my father's house. If I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they may also come to this place of torment. What's the implication here? I didn't have enough evidence. I didn't, I didn't have the proper information. I didn't have what I needed to make a decision. And last, the most, uh, probably the most important thing is what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask to get out of hell. You see, he doesn't want to be there. But he doesn't want to repent either. Okay? That's an important point. There's blame shifting going on here. And it's odd. But not if you understand what hell is. And not if you understand what hell is all about. Hell is simply just the freely chosen false, your freely chosen false identity going on forever. Hell is nothing more than what you asked for. Hell is always something that a person chooses, and you're only in hell so long as you choose it. And, and what's happening here in the passage is like Romans 1. God simply gives people over to their own desires. You know, the doctrine of hell is as close to the doctrine of American freedom as the Bible ever gets. Hell is the greatest monument to human freedom there is. And that's why C.S. Lewis essentially said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell have chosen to go there. And without that self-choice, there wouldn't be a hell. So why doesn't he want to go to heaven? Because he's, he's like Ebenezer Scrooge, humbug. Can't be that nice. He's in denial. And this is a travesty of what people think what hell is, right? Because we get our idea from hell, you know, from medieval art. You know the paintings. You know, you go, you know, you go to these Cleveland Art Gallery. They got the evil de medieval devil babies. You know, and all those really weird paintings that are out there. Well, there's always those depictions of hell. And so you've got people falling down into hell, trying to get back up out of heaven, with God closing the lid, going, <laughs> right? That's what people think hell is. 
That's not what's being described here. It's a great chasm. And people can, that are in hell know they're not there. And they realize they've, at that point they've made bad choices their entire lives and they've lived under themselves. But to be in heaven would be hell to them because they don't want to be with God. They don't want Jesus. They don't want a relationship with Jesus. They want a relationship with Jesus on their terms. And they can't make a decision to go anymore. If they had a chance in this lifetime, they won't get it in the next. And it's a great chasm that you can't cross. It's living in God's unfavorable presence forever. It's awful. But what's happening here is he's, Romans 1, giving him up to their own desires. So I'll be at Jake's and say, you're not one of those guys who believe in a literal hellfire, do you? And I say, no, I don't believe that. And they go, woo, I'm glad you don't. I say, well, I believe in something worse. Because the Bible talks about hell as being the place of the unfavorable presence of God forever. But if you want to go there, help yourself. It's your call. He, this guy is totally out of touch. But you, you also need to understand, God doesn't laugh at this. He doesn't take any joy in this. He sent his son so we can escape this. And we see that also in Luke 19, when Jesus goes to Jerusalem, 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 if you only knew the things which pertain to your peace, but are hidden from your eyes. See, the main application of this passage is if you look at the entire context. If you go back earlier in the chapter in 16, verse 14, after last week's passage, it turns to verse 14. It says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. Verse 15, You are those who are, Jesus said, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Jesus is saying to them, before he even starts this parable, you are people who are self-justified. You are people who are self-righteous. Because there's only two types of righteousness, my friends. There's self-righteousness, and there's Jesus' righteousness. Which do you want to wear? Because our identity that's self-justified is based on our accomplishments. It's based on what we've achieved or what we do. But the God-justified, God-righteousness that he gives us is not based on our accomplishments, but on God's grace. The source of identity that we've been talking about, knowing your, who, what your value is, is all from God's grace, not our accomplishments. And so Jesus gives them in this parable the way to know what their identity truly is, and it's one that lasts forever. Wouldn't you like to know whether you're self-justified or God-justified? The answer is not in how nice a person you are, not how moral person you are, how good a student you are. You know, I'm a minister. I'd love you to be moral people. That's good. You know, I'd like us to look good out in the community as community witnesses. 
But more importantly, I want you to have this, the God-justifying, God-righteous identity that only Jesus can give you. He went to hell not because he was rich, but because his riches justified him. And so the third point gives us a marker of what a God-justified life looks like in this true identity that lasts, that he tells us about. Thirdly, this identity is also marked by graceful generosity. Implied in this passage is this rich man passed by Lazarus. Lazarus is at the gate. So if he's at the gate, that means you walked through the gate every day to get to where your place of business was. So the man saw him every day. And when you put yourself as a servant to the needy, to the poor, but if you're a self-justified person, you're just trusting in your riches or in your, your, your identity in yourself, then you have people groups, people that you despise, or you're indifferent to, which is worse. That's why we have these types of issues. We're moral people. They're immoral. We're professionals. They're a failure. We're this race. They're that race. Is there any group or any one person that you despise, disdain, can't stand? Look out. If you, if you have a lasting identity in Jesus Christ based on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Your life will be marked with incredible generosity, filled with grace. And God is basically saying to this rich man, <laughs> idiot, you're in the downside of the upside down. <laughs> Lazarus is up here with me. You should have served him every day when you walked by the gate. You should have helped him. You should have not tried to justify yourself in the sight of him. You should have done something. If you had made me your good thing instead of your wealth, you would have had the reversal too. And Jesus is saying here that our love for those around us that are needy, the poor in our community, other races, different classes, different educational levels, different moral standards, different relations, reaching out to them with genuine love and compassion is the mark of a follower of Jesus Christ. Are our lives marked with such graceful generosity? Jesus doesn't leave us there, though. He gives us a true identity. He gives us an identity that lasts and in our lives that are marked by graceful generosity. But so how do we get it? He helps us. Verse 27. Then the man said, I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have had five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You know what Moses and the prophets means, right? The Bible. They have the Bible. They have the Word of God to listen to. He said, no. 
Because what he's asking for is Lazarus to come back like Jacob Marley and have a Scrooge-like transformation, right? You know, I love Christmas Carol. You know that about me, right? It's great. I love it. But this guy, Jesus is saying, "Uh uh-uh. Even if you should stand outside my tomb, you see the stone rolled away. I walk out and show you my scars you would say, wow, cool, that's amazing, it's supernatural, that's wonderful. But you still wouldn't understand all my love for you. You need to go to Moses and the prophets to see why I died and rose again. You need to see how much I love you because When you see how much I love you on the cross and why you so desperately want to be successful, want people's approval and want to live the love of the person and build your identity on me and you find your identity upon me upon the cross, then you'll understand. Now, you might say, well, you know, I've been listening. This is very interesting. You know, I see that maybe I do put too much importance on certain things. I better not do that. See, that's not going to change you by your act of the will. You can't change by simply trying or being scared of hell. You can't change by being amazed at the resurrection. You have to go to the Word of God and the Bible and listen why Jesus died and rose. Because unless you know why He died and rose, you won't really be changed because what you need is to see how much Jesus loves you. Let's go to the prophets. Amos, our reading in Amos, notice, he, he said, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. He's speaking to the home team here. So he's speaking to every single one of the church-going people here. Okay? That's, that's what he's talking. He's talking to the home team. One of the most sad things in my life in ministry was when Paul House called me after three years in an Anglican church in Birmingham. He calls me and he says, Gene, I can't do it anymore. This church, I I tried. They don't care. They come. They love the ritual. The guy preaches a a nice little homily. And they kind of drink tea together and want to be English. But they don't care about their neighbors. There's a huge neighborhood right there next to the church, and there's no outreach to them at all. I, we, we're we're going to leave. That was one of our churches. I said, what is it? He goes, it's a chapel of ease. And that came to me as I heard Amos read today. My friend's, We're not called to be a chapel of ease. We're called to be an authentic cross-centered church. And the Old Testament also says, Isaiah 52 and 53, about the suffering servant, about the one who's coming to pay for our sin. It was the Lord's will to crush him. We looked upon him and were appalled. He was disfigured beyond all human appearance, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. The Lord made him a guilt offering, but the results of his suffering he shall see, 
and be satisfied. What Jesus is saying here, I want you to know how much I love you. You have to have a transforming, overwhelming experience of my love that will pull your heart away from these things, this stuff of earth, that are giving you such an unstable, despising identity. If you want what I can give you, you need to see how much I love you. Because it was Jesus suffering upon the cross. He didn't say, my God, my God, this hurts. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken means God turned his back on his son and let son, his son go to hell. He lived in the unfavorable presence of God on the cross so we don't have to. Everything that we've been talking about is to have our heart utterly changed, our identity utterly changed by a sense of love of Jesus because he suffered for each and every one of us. Because our value depends upon his suffering. Do you see that? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher in London in World War II, said something like, you know, if I came home and you were there and you said, oh, something came in the mail and it was a bill and I paid it for you. Well, you'd be excited, right? Well, that depends. How much was the bill? If it was $3, yeah, that's okay, great. But if it was 10 years of back taxes that you owed, you'd be very grateful, wouldn't you? On the cross, Jesus took it all for us and experienced hell on our behalf. That's what the Apostles' Creed means when he descended into hell. Okay? You, you don't believe in hell? You just think he went through nails? Jesus says, I love you so much. I value you so much. Hell was worth it for me to be with you. And so my friends, two things in application this morning. Number one, embrace this. Fully embrace this. If you've been thinking to yourself, I've been living a self-justifying life. I've been doing the Christian life my way. I've had my religious phases but I was just trying to be a good moral person, let it go. Cast it all on the cross of Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're just one of those irreligious people. You happen to be here today. You, you're, you, know, you really don't care about this stuff. But you've come to realize now how much Jesus truly did love you. And it changes everything. Lord Jesus, receive me, accept me because of what you did. When that happens and you begin the transformation of your identity that we've been talking about all morning, you don't know how fast it will take. It might take a lifetime. It might happen real quickly. But Jesus says it was worth it for me to go through all that so I could be with you.
The second thing I want you to do is, as the psalmist says, to number your days. Psalm 9012, Lord, teach me to number my days. In other words, don't be scared of your death. It's coming. It's all right. You don't have to be afraid of it anymore. Because Jesus didn't just take our physical death, he took our eternal death upon the cross. So we have both an eternal and physical eternity. Yay. Donald Gray Barnhouse, the, the great pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia, went through a real tough period at one time. His wife died, and he was driving his kids to the funeral of his wife, their mother. And on the way, a truck went by, and the shadow was cast upon their car. So he turned to his kids and said something like, hey guys, you see that, that truck? They go, yeah. Would you rather be hit by the truck or the shadow of the truck? You know, the older kids are thinking, this is a trick question. So the youngest kid answers, well, I'd rather be hit by the shadow, daddy. He said, yeah, and I want you to realize this and never forget it. We're going to be okay. This will be all right. Jesus was hit by the truck. So mommy just had to go through the shadow. Jesus was run over by death. So your mother is in his presence right now. Had to go through the shadow. We are going to be okay because mommy's okay. I want you to be okay. We can be in the upside if all we want is to be with Jesus. Let's do that, shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you've given us a time to really think about this this morning. To see the beauty of what you've done for us, Lord Jesus Christ. That Believing in you is more than just belief because the demons believe, the book of James says, and they're not in a good place. They believe the facts, but it doesn't help them because they didn't reflect. They didn't know him for who he was and didn't want to. That belief in Jesus doesn't just make us happy or make us moral people but it radically changes us and gives us a hope for the future, a true identity that lasts and makes us gracefully generous and kind to other people throughout our lives. I pray, Lord, that these transformations would be in each and every one of our lives this morning and that we would come to you and receive you, Lord Jesus Christ, as God-justified and righteous people, righteous in Jesus. And Lord, I pray you would teach us to listen to your word until all these things are true of us, living in the authentic upside. And we will glorify you 
for we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.